This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 34, China in its first revolutionary years. On October 1st, 1949, with great fanfare, Mao Zedong appeared before a vast crowd in Beijing's Tiananmen Square, and he proclaimed the triumph of the communist revolution. Mao would lead a new beginning, but not an end to China's problems. Mao and his cohorts brought dramatic change to the Chinese polity, economy, and society, changes that sought to destroy, rub out, erase, expunge the shattered remnants of the imperial era and the imperfect union that had followed it. Mao's objective was to fashion a new order. His classic formula was, revolution equals the overthrow of feudalism and imperialism. Revolution provided a double thrust against those two evils. Mao declared that China had again stood up before the world. And that day in Beijing we can see is the acme for Mao's leadership in revolutionary struggle. For China's sake, it would have been better if he had stepped down then. But that did not happen. In 1949, in the maritime sphere, China rested at bottom. China was adrift, at sea, we might say, not on the sea. Despite their triumph on land, the Reds had no way to prevent their nationalist enemies from fleeing to their new island redoubt, Formosa, as the Portuguese had named it, Taiwan to the Chinese. The new mainland government had neither navy nor merchant marine, save for a few ships of indifferent quality that had defected from the defeated nationalists. The nationalists took all ships that retained loyal crews and sailed them away. Taiwan, long undeveloped, became part of mainland China only in modern times. On that island, the nationalist KMT prepared for a last stand, hoping eventually to return triumphantly to the mainland. The nationalists, with great success, used the ocean initially as an avenue of escape, subsequently as a protective moat. And so it has been ever since, furnishing a means of security. Even though Taiwan's west coast beaches seem to invite an invader, thus far, the 90-mile strait has provided effective deterrence. This saltwater buffer gave the nationalists an incredible opportunity for rebirth and reformation. How many failed regimes get such a second chance? Behind the moat, 
the KMT government were able to build a highly successful oceanic state based on a flourishing export economy born out of necessity. Success initially drew heavily from Taiwan's experience as a Japanese colony, which had built a substantial base of investment in public health, industry, roads, railroads, and ports, namely Kaohsiung, today a global port. And ultimately, the newcomers were able to resolve to reconcile their presence with the native Taiwanese majority, even though that relationship started badly. Locals regarded the refugees from the mainland as carpetbaggers, outside oppressors. But the KMT achieved political stability and subsequently made the transition to a working democracy, as would the Republic of Korea. Taiwan may not have triumphed in retaking the mainland, its long-proclaimed intention. That announced political objective became no longer one in which anyone believed. But Taiwan's commercial culture and know-how and Taiwan's investment capital, we might say, have captured the mainland. They did this by helping shape coastal China into a new maritime mode, not unlike that of Taiwan itself. Taiwan saw and seized the advantages to be got from the third phase of oceanic revolution long before the mainland did. The near mainland would become Taiwan's economic hinterland, aided by the strength of ethnic ties between the island and the mainland. The mainland was regarded as the ancient homeland, the hearth of the culture for both. And there, Taiwanese found it advantageous to establish small and medium-sized factories where labor was available, eager, and cheap. And somewhere along the way, Americans stopped calling China red and began to call Formosa Taiwan. Next time, in the penultimate stop on this voyage we're sharing, we'll see how China is sailing ahead in episode 35. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg, recording by Charlotte Allard in Gloucester, Massachusetts, production and distribution by Albert Buichade-Ferret, Goodbye until next time.